Hello, and welcome to the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series, the Bar of Ireland's contribution in seeking to build an understanding of how national figures have both been shaped by and shaped the law in Ireland. This series follows our 2016 lectures and portrays the intersection between law, politics and literature, and by extension detailing some of the notable characters, culture and controversies that define the Irish state throughout the years. Revisiting landmark cases and their lasting impact, the lectures are presented by preeminent barristers, passionate about their respective themes and delivered from the Honourable Society of King's Inns. In the first of the series, Frank Callanan Senior Counsel on John Francis Taylor's speech at the King's Inns in 1901 and Ulysses, introduced by Paul Gunning BL, Chair of the Bar's Public Affairs Committee. Good afternoon and you're very welcome to the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series on behalf of the Bar of Ireland. The first three lecture series due to the current restrictions are being delivered from the Honourable Society of King's Inns and we're very grateful for the Inns for giving us that facility. I'm delighted to introduce you to our first speaker, Frank Callanan, Senior Counsel. And Frank is going to speak on the topic of the tables of the law graven in the language of the outlaw, John Francis Taylor's speech at King's Inns in 1901 and Ulysses. Thank you, Paul, and uh, welcome to the Benchers Room of the King's Inns. And I want to talk this evening of a speech made by John Francis Taylor on 24 October 1901 at the inaugural meeting of the Law Students Debating Society here in the King's Inns. The auditor's address was entitled The Irish Revival. Taylor moved the vote of thanks, and Lord Justice Fitzgibbon, who was the president of the society, wound up the debate. Taylor's speech came to have a kind of contemporary street fame in Dublin. It also found its way 20 years later into Ulysses, in which the speech of the by then long dead Taylor, in a version enhanced by Joyce, is delivered by Professor McHugh in the Aeolus episode. To appreciate the contemporary impact of Taylor's speech and why it had made an impression, it's necessary to go back to the debate itself, of which the Nationalist Freeman's Journal and Irish Daily Independent and the Unionist Daily Express and Irish Times, the four principal Dublin daily papers, carried extensive reports in their editions of the 25th of October, 1901. The extent of the press coverage owed as much to the prospect of the encounter of Taylor and Fitzgibbon as to the subject matter of the debate. The debate in the dining hall downstairs was recognised to be a remarkable political occasion in the city even before Taylor and Fitzgibbon had uttered a word. This accounted for the large and unusually diverse audience in the dining hall of the inns. This included, as well as many who might be expected professionally to attend, a complement of Gaelic League supporters, the Freeman's Journal in its characteristic manner that was to be affectionately parodied by Joyce and Ulysses, carried a list of many of those present. William Walsh, the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, was present. The Archbishop of Armagh, Cardinal Logue, sent apologies. Also in the audience were Patrick H. Pierce, BL, John McNeil, that's to say Owen McNeil, and Maud Gahn, who, who would describe the speech to Yeats. The debate was a rhetorical joust between champions of the two Irelands, a first set-piece confrontation on the then novel issue of the Irish Revival. Gerard Fitzgibbon had been an advocate of high distinction, 
who had served as Solicitor General in Ireland 1877 rather, to 78. He had not ceased on his appointment as a Lord Justice of Appeal in 1878 to be a figure of immense political influence, undeviatingly conservative, and of legendary intelligence and political acumen, not always the same thing, Fitzgibbon was considered the preeminent intellectual figure of Irish unionism. He remained close to Lord Randolph Churchill, whom he had met when Churchill was in Ireland during his father, the Duke of Marlborough's Lord Lieutenancy, 1876 to 1880, and significantly influenced and continued to influence Randolph Churchill's policies and pronouncements on Ireland. The shrewdest commentator on the Irish judiciary wrote in 1890 that Fitzgibbon had been a candidate for appointment to the Judicial Committee of the English Privy Council and membership of the House of Lords in 1889, but that a sufficient obstacle to his promotion was his friendship with Lord Randolph Churchill, whose friends are not admitted to as the friends of the present government. That was a Conservative government. Lord Randolph has stayed more than once with the Lord Justice in his pleasant red brick house that overlooks the, the, hill, the sea from the Hill of Hoth. And in fact, Churchill continued to attend the annual Christmas party in Hoth that Fitzgibbon held uh, in occasion that uh, Fitzgibbon characterized as the haute école of intelligent Toryism. Something of Fitzgibbon's suavity and imperturbable self-assurance is captured in the full-length portrait commenced by Walter Osborne and completed by Sarah Cecilia Harrison that looks down over the dining hall. John Francis Taylor was a respected but not especially successful member of the Irish Bar. Passionately nationalist and notoriously irascible, his principal fame was as an itinerant nationalist orator, if mostly within the confines of the two canals of Dublin. That geographical confinement was mitigated by social, sociological reach. Yeats wrote in The Trembling of the Veil what was an instalment of his brilliantly fraught characterization of Taylor in his autobiographical writings. Yeats wrote, he spoke in the most obscure places, in little halls in back streets, where the whitewashed walls are foul with grease from many heads, before some audience of medical students or of shop assistants, for he was like a man under a curse, compelled to hide his genius, and compelled to show in conspicuous places his ill judgment and his temper. Yeats later described him as a great orator, the greatest I have heard, doomed by the violence of his temper to speak before law students debating societies, obscure young Ireland societies, workmen's clubs. Taylor's status in liberal Britain was more securely institutionalized as the Dublin correspondent of the Manchester Guardian, which was a Gladstonian liberal daily newspaper. He, he was marginalized during Parnell's ascendancy in Ireland, not on account of his admiration for Isaac Butt, but by reason of the refractory independent-mindedness um, of which to, to which the tear in the leadership of the Irish Parliamentary Party below Parnell was acutely alert. In the O'Shea divorce crisis in 1890, 
Taylor initially rallied to Parnell before reversing into alignment with uh, Gladstone, the uh, liberal leader uh, in opposition to Parnell, adopting many of the arguments of T.M. Healy, whom he loathed. He became, in time after Parnell's death, estranged from the anti-Parnellites, but neither repented of nor critically addressed his anti-Parnellism in the split, in the politically long interval between Parnell's death and his own. That was a bitter silence. It might be said that Taylor's political life was twice broken by Parnellism. By the time of the debate in the King's Inns, he was close to Arthur Griffith and a contributor to the United Irishman, who was greatly valued by Griffith. Taylor died the following year. He had one final rhetorical occasion on which he took steady and for once unerring aim. The debate here was defined by its moment in political time. Irish unionists were gratified by the enfeeblement of nationalism brought about by the Parnell split. A unionist government was in office from 1895 and would continue to be until 1906. Ameliorative conservative measures characterised as killing home rule by kindness, principally in the domains of land purchase and local government, achieved a degree of success. The advances of nationalism under Parnell had nonetheless deeply unsettled the confidence of Irish unionists so that their hegemony in Ireland was marked by persisting unease, masked by the sedulously maintained posture of confidence uh, assumed by Irish unionist politicians and publicists. J.F. Taylor spoke here after the auditor's paper. He invoked Thomas Davis and he welcomed the auditor's address because of its reinforcement of personal and national dignity. Many distinguished Irishmen, he said, were fond of going about saying they were Irishmen. He did not know of anything more humiliating than to see intellectual Irishmen going from one country house to another in England with cap and bells and turning their poor country into ridicule. If this new movement, the Irish language revival, did nothing more than make these men ashamed, it would be a gain. Taylor passed to the issue of migration from Ireland and thence to the Irish language in the brilliant rhetorical flight that won the speech at Stranahan, when he said, now as regards the language, suppose a great message was to be given to the human race. In what language was it likely to be given? What was the greatest message ever given to man? Christian and non-Christian alike were agreed upon that matter. Was that message that given in the language of Imperial Rome or the language of intellectual Greece? No, it was given in the rustic dialect of a far off land out of which no good could come. Had that fact any meaning for them there and now, he could very well understand an intellectual Egyptian speaking to Moses. Why bother about these people of yours in Egypt? I know possibly we have not treated them very well, but all that is over now, and you may be chosen to rule over Egypt, and every public position is open to your people. I have no patience with you talking about your history and literature. Why, I asked one of the learned professor professors of your literature the other day, what it was like, and he told me it was made up of superstitions and indecency. If Moses had listened to the counsels of that learned professor, he would never have come down from the mountain, his face glowing as a star and bearing the tablets of the law. Had these facts no meaning for them here and now, 
He did not mean that they should expect any great message from the Irish language in the future. But if there was such a great message, it would come not from a language encrusted with commercialism and materialism. It would come from some pure language that was kept aloof and unsullied with contamination with the world. The passionate, though habitually over-vehement orator, had found a still point of vantage in equating the destiny of the Irish with that of the Jews. He attained a high cogency on a great occasion that required it. It was a famous triumph. Quite apart from the invocation of Moses and the comparison of the Irish and the Jews, Taylor's speech was of supreme political intelligence. It was directed not only at Fitzgibbon, it was a masterclass in political nationalism, and almost imperceptibly a rebuke to a younger generation of nationalists infatuation, who were infatuated with the revival of the Irish language, for some of whom it was almost a credo in itself. With grizzled audacity, Taylor appropriated the idea of the revival of the Irish language to deliver a magnificent restatement on political grounds, a political argument for Irish nationalism that owed very little to revivalism. Taylor was never a committed revivalist of the Irish language, and his reservations as a political nationalist about language revivalism matched those of Arthur Griffith, the political figure to whom he was closest at the end of his life, though Griffith was to find himself later constrained to embrace revivalist ideas. And Taylor's views were not far removed from Joyce's own on the Irish language. Joyce's, Joyce was suspicious of Irish language revivalism, but held back from creating a rift with his own political generation by condemning it, thereby showing a capacity for calculated restraint not easily accommodated within the conventional understanding of Joyce. Thus, although the debate in the inns was a contest between nationalist and unionist Ireland, it encompassed a contest between two conceptions of Irish nationalism. The contest within Irish nationalism was to shift almost beyond recognition in the two decades that ensued, when the Irish language became a defining ensign of a radical political nationalism, which it did much to inspirit, and was a prominent feature in the political self-presentation of the Irish free state. Yet, if the line of demarcation between revivalism and political nationalism became confusingly blurred in the years to follow, it was never effaced. Taylor was speaking in anticipation of Fitzgibbon's winding up of the debate. As in Taylor's speech, the issue of the Irish revival was overlain by the contest of unionism with nationalism. It transpired to be the last occasion on which a plaidoyer for unionism in Ireland, as it stood after the conservative chief secretaryships of Arthur Balfour and of his brother Gerard, and during the currency of that of George Wyndham, was delivered to a politically mixed audience. It was an event that had already become uncommon in Dublin and was only made possible by the fact that the Irish revival, heavily Anglo-Irish at its initiation, was not yet tribally polarised and because the King's Inns was an integral institution, albeit like the Irish bar itself and the Irish judiciary, an institution in political flux. Fitzgibbon lacked or through his long occupancy of judicial office had lost 
the cunning in a public meeting that Taylor had come to possess in abundance through long practice in the dreary venues recalled by Yeats. With lawyerly exhaustiveness, Fitzgibbon complacently rehearsed all of the cogent arguments against the revival of what he called this old language, an object of intense interest and affection from his very earliest days. He dismissed the idea of bilingualism. No man could have two mother, mother tongues. No man could think in two languages. He placed much emphasis on the issue provocative to nationalists of what he called the voluntary giving up of the Irish language. And I quote, he took the best proof that English was spoken in those remote parts of Ireland where the inhabitants possessed it as their native language. He took as the clearest proof the case of Daniel O'Connell himself, the greatest master of invective and the greatest advocate of his day. He was speaking no foreign tongue when he spoke in English, either in the courts of this country or in the parliament across the water. Fitzgibbon asked, what Irish were they going to revive, noting the difference between ancient and modern Greek? This was a subliminally racial theme of 19th century scholarship in Britain and Germany, connected to the proposition that there was no bloodline connecting the modern Greeks with the ancient inhabitants of their country. Fitzgibbon's most cogent argument was pragmatically Darwinian, that the Irish language simply had not survived as a viable medium of communication. He said, no living language could stand still. The inevitable law of life was that they must either be growing or decaying, applied to a language as it did to a tree or a living being. And in that respect, the history of the Irish tongue was eminently melancholy for, arrested in its progress beyond doubt or question for more than a hundred years. Fitzgibbon was here bravely trying to make a difficult and important argument, but the sympathy it might have attracted was lost in the barristerial exhaustiveness of his argument and in the overt identification with unionism. Fitzgibbon stated that the Irish language was exceedingly difficult to learn and that there were considerable regional variations. In conclusion, he addressed the auditor's assertion that the loss of the Irish language had been fatal to Ireland as a nation. Here his imperialism brought him eerily close to the idiom of the intellectual Egyptian of Taylor's speech, with the difference that he was asserting that Ireland was already, rather than prospectively, a partner in an imperial project of incomparable vastness. He said, their friends or neighbours across the water were very proud of what they called Great Britain. We heard perhaps too much of the empire on which the sun never set and so forth. But what was that Great Britain? New Zealand was as large as the United Kingdom. Australia was as large in solid land as the whole of Europe, together with the Black Sea and the Mediterranean thrown in. These two taken together could be laid on the vast colony and territories of Canada and have patches all round them, quite big enough to prevent them falling off. Through the whole of that vast aggregation, English was the language, with a few scattered exceptions of the inhabitants, and in the winning and making eye, in the governing of that vast aggregation of land, the lion's share had not gone to the lion, but to the gale. Scotch and Irish had been the wings that had carried the body forward as it spread over the whole earth. Was there no greater Ireland? Beyond the imperial grandiloquence, Fitzgibbon was playing 
on the economic interest and career opportunities of Irish graduates. That was something that prompted Joyce Stephen Dedalus's otherwise enigmatic statement in Stephen Hero that English is the medium for the continent, a wry hint at Joyce's own likely forthcoming exile. Yeats wrote 15 years later, in 1916, of the speech of Taylor, whom he brilliantly and accurately described as an obscure great orator. It was magnanimous on the part of Yeats, who was driven to distraction by the truculence of Taylor's nationalism. Yeats wrote, the other day in Dublin, I heard a man murmuring to another one of his speeches, one of Taylor's speeches, as I might some Elizabethan lyric that is in my very bones. It was delivered at some Dublin debate, some college society perhaps. The Lord Chancellor had spoken with balanced unemotional sentences, now self-complacent, now derisive. Taylor began, hesitating and stopping for words, but after speaking very badly for a little, straightened his figure and spoke as out of a dream. Joyce was almost certainly not uh, in the dining hall of the King's Inns downstairs when Taylor spoke. His biographer, Richard Ellman, more or less assumed that he must have been from what might be called the enhanced fidelity of Taylor's speech as rendered in Ulysses to what is recorded of it. Joyce certainly read the copious newspaper coverage. His recall reflected how attentive he was to Irish politics, Irish political figures and journalism, and to the issue of the language revival, which hit, which hit his age cohort in University College like a great wave while he was still in Dublin. That is the Joyce of whom we have lost sight. He was prompted in, in writing Ulysses by an incomplete account of Taylor's speech in a pamphlet published anonymously by Roger Casement entitled The Language of the Outlaw. Casement was not present in the dining hall either and drew on an account given in a letter of an anonymous correspondent called X to the Manchester Guardian a little after Taylor's death. This Casement, this letter of X, Casement erroneously assumed to be the only record of Taylor's speech and it informs some minor errors in Joyce's account of the event in Ulysses. One of these is that Professor McHugh in Ulysses asserts that Taylor's speech was made at the College Historical Society in Trinity College. Joyce was probably prompted by the statement of X that the speech was made at the University College Debating Society. It was a strange fate to befall the speech as Taylor had in his sights not merely Fitzgibbon but three prominent Trinity professors who had publicly disparaged the heritage of the Irish language. We are here this evening in the King's Inns to take back John Francis Taylor. If Joyce did not hear Taylor's speech at the Inns, he heard him speak the following month at the Literary and Historical Society in University College. On the 20th of November 1901, Taylor replied to the inaugural paper of the auditor Robert Kinahan on the social problem. The occasion was in the recall of William Dawson, chief, chiefly remarkable for a very brilliant speech by J.F. Taylor. St. Stephen's, the then college magazine, noted Joyce's presence. 
it observed that while Taylor's style compared with that of our own Joyce at his best, though he was possessed of a broadness of sympathy, Joyce had yet to, yet to acquire. St. Stephen's recorded that during Taylor's speech, Dreamy Jimmy and J.F. Byrne, standing on a windowsill, looked as if they could say things unutterable. That is likely to have had more to do with their response to Kinahan's crude and obsequiously Catholic treatment of the subject of European socialism than with Taylor's speech in reply. That's uh, unlikely to have been the only occasion on which Joyce heard Taylor. He also knew a great deal about Taylor, largely from his close reading of Arthur Griffith's United Irishman, that was to find expression in his ferocious review of the poems and ballads of William Rooney, a, a friend of Griffith's recently deceased, that he published in the Daily Express of the 11th of December, 1902. Taylor was a figure of interest to Joyce as someone who had begun as a disciple of Isaac Butt, been an anti-Parnellite in the split, and ended as a collaborator of Arthur Griffith. Remarkably for an adherent of the dead Parnell, Joyce was not indifferent to the fate of nationalist public figures who were displaced by and excluded in Parnell's rise. Joyce saw Parnellism as a modernizing force and knew that its advance was not without unequally distributed costs. Some of Parnell's lieutenants, and T.M. Healy in particular, detested Taylor and opposed his going forward as a parliamentary candidate. Whether because of Taylor's support of Isaac Butt, his closeness to Michael Davitt, or his defects of temperament, or because he, Parnell, knew nothing about Taylor's interest, Parnell did not override those in the Irish party opposed to Taylor's candidacy. Turning to Ulysses. In Ulysses itself, Joyce both radically reworks Taylor's speech and sets it within an intric in intricate interpretative frame through a diversification of perspectives. The part of the Aeolus episode in which Taylor's speech is discussed and reenacted is set in the office of the Evening Telegraph, the sister evening paper of the Freeman's Journal, the main nationalist daily with, with whom it shared the same premises. The small office is a curiously crowded space because of the presence of habitués who have no professional reason to be there. Prominent among these are the two figures through whom the reception of Taylor's speech are principally mediated. The first of these, and the one who delivers part of the Taylor speech in its Ulysses version, is Professor McHugh, small p professor. He is learned, certainly, a purveyor of classicizing, chiefly Latinate allusion and cliché, and within the norms of clubability that prevail in the office given to unobstreperous declamation. His title is given in a lower case, and the accumulation of anomalies subvert the idea that he actually is a professor. If he were a professor, one is left to wonder what would he be doing at midday in a newspaper office where he even answers the phone. Moreover, reflecting Joyce's social realism in rendering the Dublin of 1904, what are described as his frayed, stained shirt cuffs, and his unglazed linen collar, soiled by his withering hair, do not suggest professorial status or income. None of these hints quite prepare the reader for the interposed comment in the course of his rendering of Taylor's oration. 
that a dumb belch of hunger cleft his speech. The second mediating figure is J.J. O'Malloy, a figure conceived by Joyce with great imaginative cunning. Unlike Professor McHugh, he has no shadow of a conjectural real-life co-relative such as Professor McHugh did have, nor could O'Malloy have had. He has been succinctly epitomised by Adrian Hardiman as a broken-down barrister. He is also mortally stricken, as is made plain from his entrance, where he meets Simon Dedalus. How are you, Dedalus? Well, and yourself? J.J. O'Malloy shook his head. J.J. O'Malloy is a figure who has a dual existence in the novel. He is both a character in his own right and a reflection of J.F. Taylor, whose death had occurred two years before the date on which Ulysses was set, as if in a spectral mirror. J.J. O'Malloy is only incidentally a conventionally conceived fictional figure in the novel. This dual aspect enables Joyce to render him as a figure whose character is quite at odds with the fractious persona of the real-life Taylor. J.J. O'Malloy is mild and highly perceptive, sympathetic to Stephen and interested in his future as a writer. He owes his existence to Joyce's elaborate strategizing on how the Taylor speech, as rendered by Professor McHugh, is to be apprehended. The same strategizing ensures that what at first reading seems odd and disappointing at the level of sentimental expectation, which is what Joyce is deliberately holding in check, is that it is Professor McHugh rather than the more sympathetic proxy for Taylor, J.J. O'Malloy, who delivers the Ulysses version of the Taylor speech. The bustling emergence of the editor, Miles Crawford, from his inner sanctum, sharpens the exchanges in the outer office of the Evening Telegraph. Professor McHugh opens his declamation on empire with the statement, we think of Rome, imperial, imperious, imperative. He proceeds to condemn the civilization of Rome, reducible to a cloacal obsession, in which the construction of sewers and water closets anticipated the English as a successor imperial race. He holds obdurately to his theme across the stream of exchanges. We were always loyal to lost causes, the professor said. Success for us is the death of the intellect and of the imagination. We were never loyal to the successful. He resumes, the closet makers and the cloaca makers will never be lords of our spirit. We are liege subjects of the Catholic chivalry of Europe that founded at Trafalgar and of the empire of the spirit not an imperium that went under with the Athenian fleets at Aegospotomy. Yes, yes, they went under. Miles Crawford, the editor, vaunts the feet of the journalist Ignatius Gallagher in reporting the Phoenix Park murders and lauds other successful members of the journalistic profession. He passes on to a lament of the decline of eloquence at the Irish bar in remarks directed to J.J. O'Malloy. J.J. O'Malloy responds by referring to a speech of Seymour Bush in the Child's murder trial, which Joyce had attended as a student in October 1899, and recites under the headline, A Polished Period, a rather extravagant evocation of Michelangelo's statue of Moses in Rome. A little surprisingly, or against the run of the novel's play, Stephen is moved. 
Stephen, his blood wooed by grace of language and gesture, blushed. P part of the effect was indeed achieved by J.J. O'Malloy's gestures. His slim hand, with a wave, graced echo and fall. Rhetoric and patriotism are linked in Aeolus, as are journalism and forensic oratory. Stephen Dedalus is, in spite of himself, susceptible to both, while willing himself to resist the temptation that they represent. That resistance is a defining attribute of his conception of the artist he has not yet become. After Professor McHugh commences his rendition of Taylor's speech, Stephen thinks, noble words coming, look out. Could you try your hand at it yourself? Joyce is also with oblique cunning, pre-signalling the impact of the more skilled and moving Taylor speech on Stephen, which is not described in the novel. Professor McHugh delivers his version of Taylor's King's Inn speech. It is a redraft by Joyce of the idea of the speech, which superbly maintains a fidelity to what it was in Taylor's speech in 1901 that gave it its contemporary impact and improves upon it. The principal change wrought by Joyce to Taylor's rhetorical conceit is that Taylor's intellectual Egyptian becomes a high priest of Egypt in whom the merged authority of religion and state were vested. Joyce thereby elided Taylor's subtext of the attack on the professors in Trinity who had disparaged not just the revival but the Irish language as a historical and literary phenomenon. The closing peroration of Joyce's reworking of Taylor, drawing on the Book of Exodus, runs. But ladies and gentlemen, had the youthful Moses listened to and accepted that view of life, had he bowed his head and bowed his will and bowed his spirit before that arrogant admonition, he would never have brought the chosen people out of their house of bondage nor followed the pillar of the cloud by day. He would never have spoken with the eternal amid lightnings on Sinai's mountaintop, nor would he ever have come down with the light of inspiration shining in his countenance and bearing in his arms the tables of the law graven in the language of the outlaw. Professor McHugh craves an acknowledgement of the effect created by his performance, which he is denied. In the silence, J.J. O'Malloy, not without regret, observes abstractedly in his spectral aspect. And yet he died without having entered the land of promise. With that, the memory of Parnell flares back in the split of 1890 to 91, which was seared into Joyce's memory from boyhood. The Irish leader was often compared to Moses. In the unforgettable speech in the Rotunda on his return to Ireland after his defeat in Committee Room 15, Far Parnell had famously expressed the aspiration to walk with you within sight of the promised land, which, please God, I will enter with you. When Professor McHugh, still trying to drum, drum up a compliment, says of the Taylor speech, that's oratory. It was as if the spell of Taylor's speech is broken. Stephen's thought pivots away from Parnell to the Daniel O'Connell of the famous monster meetings for repeal of the Union in 1843. 
still trying to catch a response, the professor nudges Stephen. That is fine, isn't it? It has the prophetic vision. Fuit ilium, the sack of windy Troy, kingdoms of this world, the masters of the Mediterranean are fellahin today. Greeks and Trojans are merged in that comment. The complacent dismissal of contemporary Greece, to whose achievement of a form of independence Joyce was greatly sympathetic, exemplifies Professor McHugh's inexorable drift from Latinate fatalism to passive imperialism. Joyce's strategy of having McHugh deliver Taylor's speech and framing it by reference to the professor's pronouncements before and after is of masterly intricacy. As Joyce worked it out, it required and called into being the figure of J.J. O'Malloy. On a superficial reading, Professor McHugh's earlier observations are a prelude to and consistent with the speech of Taylor, which he later uh, renders. But in fact, they are not. There's a fundamental disjuncture, which is not confined to the grace of expression ascribed to Taylor in the speech. For all his own immiseration, Professor McHugh's views are those of the Catholic professional classes. The lower case P professor delivers as a party piece a speech whose force he apprehends at the level of pure rhetoric, but to whose political and imaginative resonance he is deaf. His pedagogic classicism immunizes him against any idea of revival. He does not quite get the speech that he redelivers. His conception of Ireland as a country whose native Catholic leadership went down under the waves at Trafalgar, like the Greeks at Aegospotomy, is as extravagant in its absurdity as any proposition of the citizen in the later Cyclops episode of the novel. Above all, Professor McHugh sentimentalizes Irish defeat and abjection. After that lyrical outburst, O'Madden Burke chimes in, drawing on Matthew Arnold via Yeats to say, they went forth to battle, but they always fell, meaning the Irish. Insofar as Taylor's speech had within its larger argument a specific target, Joyce redirects it through the persona of Professor McHugh away from the Trinity professors to the Irish educated professional class that generally identified with the Irish Parliamentary Party. That underscores the irony of a rendering of Taylor's speech on the revival of the Irish language being delivered by a classicist temper temperamentally impervious to the idea of any Irish revival, linguistic or political. Joyce's own tendress towards Taylor's speech as he had reworked it in Ulysses. It is reflected in the fact that it is the only part of Ulysses that he recorded, magnificently declaimed in a phonodisc recording in 1924. When Sylvia Beach asked Joyce to record part of Ulysses, he chose the Taylor speech as the only passage that could be lifted out of Ulysses and the only one that was declamatory and therefore suitable for recital. Sylvia Beach recalled, I have an idea that it was not only for declamatory reasons alone that he chose this passage from Aeolus. I believe that it expressed something he wanted said and preserved in his own voice. As it rings out, he lifted his voice above it boldly. It is more one feels than mere oratory. What, what then did Taylor's speech 
mean for choice. It revealed the possibility of invoking politically the culture of ancient Ireland and ancient history in a way that was distinct from that of the Gaelic League and essentialist cultural nationalism without altogether denying the impetus of the Gaelic League. The contemporary élan of the language revival could be captured and redirected as Taylor had contrived to do in the dining hall here. Joyce was susceptible to the argument of the kind enunciated by Taylor that married Ireland's artistic and historical heritage with high nationalism. The argument of Joyce's superb 1907 Trieste lecture, Ireland, Island of Saints and Sages, is in the line of Taylor's speech. And Joyce wrote there, just as ancient Egypt is dead, so is ancient Ireland. Its dirge has been sung and the seal set upon its gravestone. The ancient national spirit that spoke through the centuries through the mouths of fabulous seers, wandering minstrels and Jacobite poets has vanished from the world with the death of James Clarence Mangan. With his death, the long tradition of the triple order of the ancient bards also died. Today, other bards inspired by other ideas have their turn. That judgment also finds expression in his 1907 article written for a Triestine newspaper, Ireland at the Bar, in an article beloved of Adrian Hardiman and on which he wrote perceptively. Joyce wrote plangently that Miles Joyce, wrongly executed for the Mamtrasna murders, who spoke only Irish, was, and I quote, left over from a culture that is not ours. The last word is with Joyce, though his 1924 recording of his own reworking of Taylor's speech can be accessed on YouTube, it is not well known. I thank you. We began. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, great was my admiration in listening to the remarks addressed to the youth of Ireland a moment since by my learned friend. It seemed to me that I had been transported into a country far away from this country, into an age remote from this age, that I stood in ancient Egypt, and that I was listening to the speech of a high priest of that land addressed to the youthful Moses. His listeners held their cigarettes poised to the earth, their smoke ascending in frail stalks that flowered with his speech. Noble words coming. Look out. Could you try your hand at it yourself? And it seemed to me that I heard the voice of that Egyptian high priest raised in a tone of light haughtiness and light pride. I heard his words, and their meaning was revealed to me from the Father. And it was revealed to me that those things are good to see as a corrupted which neither if they were supremely good nor unless they were good to be corrupted and crushed as they were. Why will you Jews not accept our language, our religion, 
and our culture. You are a tribe of nomad herdsmen. We are a mighty people. You have no cities, no, no wealth. Our cities are hives of humanity. And our galleys, trireme and quadrireme, laden with all manner merchandise, follow the waters of the known globe. You have but emerged from primitive conditions. We have a literature, a priesthood, an age-long history, and a policy. Nile, child, man, ethically, by the Nile bank, the paid Mary's kneel, cradle of bull Russian, a man subtle in combat, stone-horned, stone-bearded, heart of stone. You pray to a local and a pure idol. Our temples, majestic and mysterious, are the abodes of Isis and Osiris, of Horus and Amunra. Your system, awe and humbleness, our thunder and sea. Israel is weak, and few are her children. Egypt is an hope, and terrible are her arms. Vagrants and day laborers are you called. The world trembles at our name. A dumb belch of hunger clutched his speech. He lifted his voice above his boldly. But, ladies and gentlemen, had the youthful Moses listened to and accepted that view of life, had he bowed his head and bowed his will and bowed his spirit before that arrogant admonition, he would never have led the chosen people out of their house of bondage, nor followed the pillar of the cloud by day. He would never have spoken with the eternal on Sinai's mountain top, nor ever have come down with the light of inspiration shining in his countenance and bearing in his arms the tables of the law, graven in the language of the outlaw. Thank you for listening to this lecture of the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series. We hope you enjoy the remaining talks, which are available on YouTube to view and wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, stay safe.